1982, a number, another summer, as Golazzo goes back to one of the most remarkable World Cup campaigns ever, Espana 82, triumph of the Azuri. Also today, an update on how this year's model is getting on against Finland and Liechtenstein, and a huge weekend in Syria. It's summer of 1982, and a group of men are playing cards at 30,000 feet. Around a small table are clustered, on one hand, Franco Causio and Dino Zoff. On the other, the president of the Italian Republic, Sandro Pertini, and Italy manager, Enzo Berzot. Beside them on the table, alongside the discarded cards, is a large thing called a FIFA World Cup trophy. It's one of the most iconic images of that incredible summer for Italian football. The partita di Scopone on the way back from the triumph at the Bernabeu. Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle. Today we're going to talk about the events that led up to that game of cards and an extraordinary, unexpected World Cup triumph. That scene you described, James, is obviously very iconic, very meaningful to, to a lot of us. And it's funny you mentioned there Sandro Pertini without wanting to bore people silly. We have a presidency, which is a head of state. And then we have a prime minister who actually runs the country. But the president traditionally is supposed to be the guarantor, the sort of the universal, impartial figure. A bit like Burko, actually. But in Pertini's case, it was it was interesting because he had obviously, he'd fought in the resistance during World War II. And he was sort of this short, very old, old-looking. I mean, in my memory, he's always like a million years old, which obviously, he must have been young once. And... There's a wonderful scene in the final where he's up in the, in the director's box and he can't contains himself and he has this huge smile uh, as he turns to the King of Spain and whatnot. But you know, we often live these World Cups via little sort of fragments of images, things that stand out, Gaza's tears, all this nonsense. But it is nonsense, but it's also very real. Mm. And so I think Bertini is hugely important to people in Italy where we dislike our politicians as much as people everywhere do. But he was somebody who really was adored by everybody, and even more so because he's so associated with that 1982 win. Pertini, president of a, of a bitterly divided nation uh, in the early 80s. It was the Anni di Piombo still, the, the years of lead. The Red Brigade were in force still, as were the neo-fascists who'd blown up, killed hundreds of people at the Bologna uh, train uh, station well, massacre. Four years before the Prime Minister Italy had been, or former Prime Minister, had been kidnapped and mm. uh, was found in the back of a, a car taken hostage in the capital and killed by the Red Brigade. So. As we say, an extraordinary political backdrop uh, in those years. In football terms as well, while the notion of Italy being world champions doesn't sound that extraordinary, they were coming from possibly the lowest place that the that their national sport had ever been. Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting dynamic because in, in 78, uh, Bezot takes a, a very young Italy side to the World Cup in Argentina and they exceed expectation. Um, I think 11 of that 23 were 25 or under. Paolo Rossi was, was up front. He was 21 at the time. I think scored three goals. And they reached the semifinals. And they believed they could have won that tournament. And um, they were leading at half-time, I think, against the Netherlands. And then two worldies from Ari Han and was it Brantz get pass off. And everyone says off's finished. But there was this kind of feeling that potential to be realised in this team. But in the interim, you have the massive blow of the Calciascomessi scandal. 11 giocatori, 9 di Serie A, 2 di Serie B, e il presidente di una società calcistica, cioè Colombo, presidente del Milan, 
Extraordinary scenes in Syria. Players arrested as they came off the field. Uh, 11 players in total on that first day. Nine from Syria, a couple of second division players as well. Uh, all part of this massive match-fixing affair, which was to see Paolo Rossi, who, as you just mentioned, been one of the heroes of the 78 World Cup, suspended initially for, for three years. Italy, that summer of 1980... We're also hosting the European Championships, Gab. And the European Championships back there were obviously a much smaller affair in terms of numbers. But Eight teams. Yeah. Italy were at home, um, and they had that tremendous team from the 78 World Cup, which, by the way, in that World Cup, Italy were, were the only team to beat Argentina, who would go on to, to win it. And it seems weird to say today, but a lot of people felt that they probably played the best football in the tournament, along with Brazil. And... Italy end up finishing fourth, but they don't play well. There, there's a tremendous amount of pressure. They've been affected by by the calcio scommesse. There's a real sense of negativity. And that then translates on into the qualifying campaign for the World Cup, where Italy just kind of barely squeak in. And this is the thing. Going into the 82 World Cup, they only win two of, of 12 games, and they're against Luxembourg and Bulgaria. Yeah, there was this sense that no one really believed in this team. That there was a lot of scepticism and that the only person who believed in them was the guy who selected them, which is Beza. Mm. Pre-tournament friendlies, a 1-1 draw with Switzerland, then on the eve of the tournament, a dismal performance against Sporting Braga that led one observer to comment, if this is the national team, it's better that we just go home. That observer being the president of the Italian FA, Federico Sordillo. So, you know, with presidents of the FA like that, yeah. who needs enemies? And uh, Beerzot and his staff dressed like a barbershop quartet in those iconic pinstripe um, seersucker, seersucker yeah, suits uh, were, were off to what looked like being a really dismal World Cup campaign. First game is the 0-0 draw with, uh, with, with Poland. And then there's a 1-1 draw with Peru, which uh, I think led Antonio Materesi to say that he wanted to go and kick all the players in their backsides. In the meantime... Criticism of the team has become so extreme. There have even been rumours that Cabrini and Paolo Rossi are having a gay affair uh, that the national side decide to institute an unprecedented uh, silencio stampa. I mean, this is in- incredible because it's not just criticism of the performances of the team. Um, there is this story in Il Giorno that, based on a photo of Cabrini and Paolo Rossi in their pyjamas looking out of their hotel room window, that they were in some kind of homosexual relationship. There was talk of Graziani going to the casino um, and losing loads of money. There was talk about the Italian Football Federation um, basically agreeing these match bonuses, which were very lucrative at the time, and obviously the press and the public at home didn't feel that the players were deserving of them. And so you have this silencio stampa, which again, I think if you were to put like a, a, a bingo of, of what's required for an Italian <laughs> triumph for a major tournament, um, siege mentality is a box that absolutely has to be ticked and, and they have it. Um, but I mean, one of the, the big controversies going into this tournament, James, which we haven't alluded to, is the squad selection itself. Right. Because you mentioned that a lot of people thought Zoff was finished. Why is he still playing? He's 40. He's 40. Um, he's made 99 caps already going into this. I feel it was time for someone else. They leave Evaristo Beccalossi, um, the sort of inter-fantasista number 10, mm. behind. And as they're leaving to go to Spain, 
Beazot is involved in an altercation with a female fan who basically criticises him for not taking Beccolossi. And then, most famously, there is you're taking Paolo Rossi, who's played only three games in the last two years, and you're leaving Roberto Pruzzo, the top scorer in the league, who scored 22 goals for, for Roma at home. Paolo Rossi, who'd originally received a three-year suspension for his mm. part in Calcio Scomezzi, that was reduced to two years, and he came back, I think... Uh, April. April, right, so a couple of months before the... The World Cup tournament and his form in those opening group games. One uh, report says it's a blasphemy to send him onto the field. Well, I mean, even his own description of himself was like, "I'm like a ghost. You know, I'm 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 not match fit. Um, I'm maybe five kilos underweight." And he has to kind of play himself into some kind of rhythm. And this is why Bezot decides not to take Pruzzo because his intention was always to start Rossi. He had great faith in him for, back from the '78 World Cup, and he thought that. If he brought Pruzzo along with him and Rossi doesn't score in the first game, the press, particularly the Rome press, would be demanding that Pruzzo play. So he takes another striker instead, Franco Selvaggi from Cagliari, um, who's just happy to be there. When Bezot basically says, would you like to go? He's like, I'll carry your bags, I'll do anything. I think yeah. we talked about in the 2006 World Cup, Iaquinto contributed more to that World Cup win than Silvaggi did to this. But someone who's not going to grumble, who's not going to be... You know, but it's a colossal gamble from the, from, the, from the manager's point of view. It is a colossal gamble. And, you know, fast forward, we've talked about this 94 World Cup with Roberto Baggio getting substituted after the, the red card against Norway and sort of muttering to himself, you know, this guy's insane... This is exactly what Berzot uh, was dealing with. Now, Berzot, you know, he said, all right, I'm, I'm kind of all in with Paolo Rossi. And Paolo Rossi, by the way, I worked with him a little bit afterwards as a TV pundit. This is a very odd cat. Um, first of all, you were saying he was underweight. Like most people, when they don't train, mm. they get overweight. This guy gets underweight. He's somebody who gives this continuous sense of being flighty. You know, we always assume that Great footballers are either geniuses, but maybe sometimes a little lazy. Um, but he certainly wasn't a genius. He was a poacher, right? Or there are people who work incredibly hard, are very competitive. Paolo Rossi wasn't that either. He was basically just a guy who somehow managed to score. Maybe a touch of the Inzaghi, but then again, Inzaghi worked hard mm. on the pitch. And I think that made everything more difficult. Paolo Rossi did not look like a centre forward. Even when he was good, he did not look like a top centre forward. He certainly didn't in the opening two group games after which they'd imposed this, this press signs, which did actually see one member of the squad nominated to talk to the press. Unfortunately, it was Dino Zoff, <laughs> probably the most laconic and taciturn, and let's be frank, quite dull in, in terms of his, his speaking voice. Also, Zoff man. and uh, Shirea's room um, in the hotel, was they nicknamed it Switzerland because right. it was just so quiet, so, so quiet. neutral. And then Italy have their third group game against Cameroon, a match introduced thusly by a young Martin Tyler. Italy are at their worst against unrated, little-known minnows. The memory of defeat by North Korea in 1966 still haunted their football. They were expected to take the attacking initiative, and they hated every minute of it. In the end, it was a slip by Thomas Ancona, the Cameroon goalkeeper, which allowed Francesco Graziani to head Italy into the league. Cameroon immediately counter-attacked. Why not? They've nothing to lose. And they needed only a minute to equalise with Gregoire Mbida. Italy reached the next round, but the fans' farewell cheers were reserved for the exciting Africans. I apologise, Martin. We've all done stupid things when we were younger. 
Italy, as they were later to admit, were terrified of that match, of basically not getting out of the group, being sent home and pelted with tomatoes. Back then, you had a 24-nation World Cup. You played your group of four, and then the top two teams would advance, and you would have four groups of three. And the winners of each sort of second round of groups would advance to the semifinals. So you figure, hey, this is good. And then you realize that Italy are in a group with Argentina, who are world champions. And on top of that, on top of the team, because obviously winning the World Cup in 1978 isn't enough. Hey, look, they have this guy named Diego Armando Maradona Mm -hmm. as well. And then who's the other team in the group? It's Brazil. It's (laughs) Tele Santana's Brazil. Oh, my goodness. The toughest draw you could possibly... Possibly have. Ali says when he, he found out that that was the draw. Because if they'd won, they were, I think they would have gone and played in a group with the Soviet Union and Belgium instead. But Ali says, well, we might as well just book our holidays to the beach now. Yeah, because Italy have only managed to make three draws. They've only scored two goals. One of them a goalkeeping error. In three games against Poland, Peru and Cameroon. Whereas Brazil have been, well, to quote the great Tim Vickery. Ah, Brazil, carnival, sex, Pelé. Yeah, or, or, or in this case, Socrates, Cerezo, Falcao, Zico, to name but four, and they've been absolutely destroying everybody. They've, they've scored 10 goals already in their group games. They're looking like the Brazil of your dreams. They are. They have this guy named Eder, who has nothing to do with the rubbish guy who played for Italy and, and Inter. He's setting new new records. Like They measure like the strength of a shot, and it's like 180 million miles an hour and stuff, and, and he's one of the rubbish players on the team. The one good thing about playing Brazil is they have a goalkeeper who's having a really difficult World Cup, Valdir Perez, and two very talented forwards, um, Reynaldo from Flamengo and, of course, Antonio Careca, aren't there. Instead, they have this guy named Serginho, who I'm told by people who know Brazilian football better than me wasn't actually terrible, but for whatever else, at that World Cup, he looked like the prototypical big lump up front. But the other nine guys, some people even suggest they might have been better if they just played with nine against 11 without a goalkeeper. Was Serginho not there to, you know, Stefan Givash it up or Olivier Giroud it up for the midfield players that we've all mentioned? I think he was also an enforcer. He was the kind of football equivalent of the hockey goon. (laughs) But he was very much (laughs) one-footed. And it it was to cost them, particularly in the game against Italy. Now, Italy... Uh, in their first game of the second group phase, came up against the world champions and, and something remarkable happened. Whether it's because they'd drawn their wagons in a circle with the press silence or whether it was because Paolo Rossi had been back long enough. But he wakes up and a certain Claudio Gentile does Maradona. Yeah, he, Gentile decides not to live up to his last name, which, by the way, doesn't mean Gentile, as in like the Gentiles and the Jews in Italian. It means gentle or kind. He's anything but kind. He kicks lumps out of, out of Maradona. Um, that wasn't no. It was against Brazil that he ripped, ripped Zico's Zico shirt. Didn't yeah. um, this guy who you know was born in Libya or when it was still an Italian? Or no, it was after it was. It was no longer Italian colony, but a bunch of Italians decided to stay behind, and that was kind of the mindset. This sort of psychopathic warrior <laughs> from from the desert, um, ferocious Saladin, as Gianni Brera called him. I spoke to Beppe Bergomi, who I'm sure we'll get to because he made history in a different way, and. You know, Beppe Bergomi had like the big mustache and they yeah. called him Lozio, the uncle, because he looked older than everybody else. But, but he was only was just, 18. He was just 18 years old. He told me that, you know, in some of those, those those training camps, Gentile would look at him and, you know, Bergomi might slide in and win the ball cleanly. And he'd be like, what's the point of doing that? When at the same time, once you've won the ball back then, you know, you get the ball first, you have free license. 
this is how you do it. And he just slides in, wins the ball, and like delivers an almighty whack to Chicho Graziani. Graziani was always kind of Gentile's favorite target in, uh, in, in, in practice. And Bergomi's like, he introduced me to kind of another world, which, you know, I'd only kind of heard about. He had a bravado about him as well, because Bezot basically goes into his room and says, fancy marking Maradona today? And he goes, yeah, what's the problem? And then as soon as Bezot walks out, he's like, oh, f- what the f*** have I done? You know, in terms of like, because right. usually it was Tardelli would mark the number 10. Instead, Gentile was given this this role. And what I find really striking, Gab, you know, reading some of the inter- interviews, listening to some of these guys, is how much they'd get videotapes right. and they would just sit there with the remote, rewind, rewind, and they'd watch them. And it's the same with Colivati and the guy he was supposed to be marking. Same with Gentile on the eve of the Maradona game, on the eve of the Zico game when he was meant to be marking him. Just how much time and effort these guys put into analysis, which I, I suppose, you know, is, is completely normal these days. But at that time, you know, to be going... You Back know, then, they were one of the ground bakers in, that, in, in the whole sort of opposition research was very important. It's also worth remembering that Back then, football was much more of an individual game than it is now. You know, especially for the defenders, you were marking an individual. So having a sense of their runs, their tendencies. You know, it's not like today where everybody plays zone and people switch positions all the time. It was it was much more a series of one-on-one battles right. all around the pitch. Okay, also, well, Gentile hates the bad guy moniker. He said one of the worst things that has happened to him in his career is to find himself on a list in the times gap where he was somewhere like number eight of the all-time football bad guys. And he's like, I only got sent off once yeah, in my career. For two yellow cards. Two yellow cards. And it was a, it was a handball was the, the, the second yellow. It was yeah. very harsh. And, you know, I didn't kick lumps out of him. I just lent on him every now and again. Make yourself out without being seen. That's what he said. It it was spectacularly successful. Maradona, who had a really poor game by his standards. Italy win 2-1. And the 5th of July then, Argentina having subsequently lost to Brazil, the Celestial and Italy then meet to decide who's going to go into the semi-final. Extraordinary, this game wasn't even the semi-final, let alone the final, because it was an absolutely epic affair. Brazil only needing a draw... And as we mentioned, an absolutely astonishing Brazil side. What was the expectation of that game in Italy? Well, the, the bookies had Italy at 4-1 to one to go through. So, I mean, that's that's long odds. Because of that extra goal that, um, that Italy Brazil needed. scored against Argentina, mm. Italy obviously needed to win. The remarkable thing about that game, and I read up a lot and spoke to a lot of people about Tele Santana because I found him to be really interesting, the, the, the Brazil manager. And he was one of those people who... You know, it was like the opposite of Italy said, play your game and don't worry about the opposition. That totally came through throughout the game because even today, even Pep Guardiola, the most attacking man you can think of, would say, all right, we're in the lead. They're going to have to come at us. So maybe we adjust some things, move them around. Tele Santana didn't believe in that. Tele Santana said, there's plan A. And you just keep doing plan A over and over again, do it better, you, we've got, we're, be, we're better than there, and we'll win. Well, it had been a pretty spectacular plan A, but it turned out to be the day in Brazilian folklore that football lost its innocence as the, the magical approach to the game was dismantled by an Italy side playing to perfection. Five minutes in, Italy get the break they need as Cabrini puts the ball up and Rossi heads at home. Extraordinarily restrained Italian commentary back in, in those days. Not long after, though, Gab, Socrates equalises. Socrates equalises by putting the ball under Dino Zoff. And some people, you know, because Dino Zoff is a national institution, 
you you can't criticize him, and some people would would fault a goalkeeper. Zoff, I think, has since said that the thing about Socrates is he was so bandy-legged and his eyes were looking in all different directions that he was so aware about the fact that he might not put it there, he might cut inside, he might you know, look for a runner from midfield, that ultimately, he says, that's how he fooled me. Brazil are drawing, which is all they need to go through. But, oh, my word, 25 minutes in then, there's a Brazilian pass that goes astray and, oh, Paulo Rossi pops up again. Italy back in the lead now, 2-1. Bad news, of course, for the football romantics worldwide, and probably Martin Tyler. But bad news for Italy not long afterwards when Colovati picks up an injury and they have to bring on an 18-year-old who's only played, I think, about 30 minutes of football yeah, for Italy before. East Germany. In a against defeat. East Germany. Yeah. And he's going to be marking the semi-murderous mountain up front, Serginho, <laughs> and his name is Beppe Bergomi, who, as you mentioned, was kind of ironically dubbed Uncle Beppe by the rest of the team because he was such a, well, not fresh face because he had this extraordinary moustache and that incredible monobrow. Yeah, he still has the monobrow, right. incidentally. This was a, a, I mean, a debut at the World Cup that was to go down in legend. Absolutely. The other guy they could have brought on, by the way, who was there in the, weirdly wasn't called up for the next World Cup in 1986 by that very same Italy manager, was a young man named Franco Baresi, who had actually, I think he would have, Baresi's 1960, I think, so he was young too, he's 22, 22, but you know, he had won a title with Milan, you know, he'd, he'd just been relegated with Milan. Right. But back Park then, back then they thought of, well, you know, he's he's a sweeper and we already have Gaetano Shirea, so he'll just back up Shirea because of course it's completely different. And that's one of the great ironies, uh, which I think a lot of people often overlook, is that Beppe Bergomi, you know, goes into legend, but the guy in 1982 who could have come on, should have come on, should have really played a larger role was Franco Baresi. Extraordinary, no? With Bergomi on the field, Falcao manages to equalise, and Brazil are going through again. This goal really does kind of come out of nothing and kind of really should have been the most soul-destroying goal because if you see it, the Italian defence is all back. Everybody's there. Everybody's where they should be. And Paolo Roberto Falcao, the future emperor of Rome, he receives the ball, he's way out, he takes two steps, acts like he's going to pass it, and instead just shoots, and nobody's expecting it. It's the swaz on the ball as well. <laughs> it, and, and, and the celebration. And you're thinking to yourself, my God, these guys can score at will. So no matter how hard you work, we will put you down whenever we want. So this is their undoing gap because they don't know any other way. They keep playing their style. They keep attacking. They don't think about, let's manage the result. Let's defend. Let's see this out. And, of course, Italy get back in. All right, 75 minutes in, Italy win their first corner of the game. And this happened. Paolo Rossi, man who'd been at the heart of Italy's disgrace two years before, a hat-trick hero against the massive favourites for that World Cup. It wasn't over, though, because Dino Zoff, in the 90th minute, has to make a huge save. You know when like, people talk about England's 
greatest World Cup moments, and it's always the same thing. It's Nobby dancing, and it's the Gordon Banks save from Pelé, and you play them over and over again. Because Italy's had a rather more successful World Cup history, we have more highlights. But this, for me, remains one of the top three, more really? than Lucy's goals. Because you have a 40-year-old man mm. doing something that, you know, the way he gets his body down and across so quickly. And backwards, I think. And, and, and backwards. He is diving backwards. You know, I mean, today, yeah, if you want, like, you know, plastic man Ter Stegen doing it with his, like, eight-foot arms, whatever, you know, in the, mid, in the prime of his career. But, you know, Dinozov was not made of rubber. He was made of stone. Did you know that the Italian Association of Worm... Earthworms. Earthworm um, farmers... Yeah. ...basically offered Dinozov a million earthworms in gratitude at his performances in the 82 workout. I've no idea if he ever took them up on their offer. Also, there, I think there was a, uh, in Crotone, there was, I think, some fisheries association. They, they offered 100 kilos uh, for every goal that Paolo Rossi scored, not thinking he would score. Obviously, after three games, he's not scoring any goals. Right. Yeah, would end up having to send... 600 kilos. Yeah, and 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 Rossi got them to send them to the Juve club in Cotone. Ah, instead. superb, yeah. superb. Who else do we need to cite? Obviously, Paolo Rossi with the hat-trick, Dino's off with the save. Maybe the most Brazilian player out there that day? Bruno Zico. Conti. Bruno Conti. Or Marazico. Part Maradona, part Zico. Extraordinary performance, not just from, from him in that game, but I think the Argentina game as well. Well, and also when Rossi gets named player of the tournament, he kind of feels that he has to give the trophy over to Bruno Conti because for him, Conti was the the best Italy player over the, over the what, 28 days. Well, watching tournament. back the highlights of, of, of that tournament, it is amazing how Conti plays. It's this, this squat, long-haired... Ambidextrous. Right. And well, yeah. he gave that Italy side something that was very different because in terms of skill and creativity... It was supposed to come from Giancarlo Antonioni, Il Bell Antonio. If had a goal disallowed, that would have made it 4-2. Rightly um, disallowed, yeah. with hindsight, uh, okay. pre-VAR uh, for offside. But Antonioni, even though he was a hero and my Florentine friends would kill me, I don't think he had a good World Cup at all. He always seemed to be getting injured or moaning or crying or there was something wrong with him. You know, he's this figure. He had these, these sort of big strawberry blonde locks and stuff and... And, you know, Lele Oriali had to do all the running and right. Marco Tate did all the running for him. So Conti had to take on that whole burden right. of creativity. It was basically Conti and Antonio Cabrini, you know, as, a, as an attacker. Peru as well. Right. Yeah. A great goal. Top corner, uh, spins his defender outside of the box, and then off Italy go. Indeed they do. All the way through, they go past Poland 2-0 in the semi-final, which is a game I always forget completely about. I don't even know who scored in it. Paolo uh, Paolo Rossi. Twice. <laughs> twice, okay. Zibi Boniek was suspended. That was, a big, that was a big deal. Right. And on the 11th of July, at a steaming Bernabeu, comes the final with Pertini in the stands, standing on his seat most of the time, as far as I can tell. And also, James, uh, Gab mentioned the 1980 European Championship in Italy. Who won that competition? It was West Germany, mm. who they were going to be playing in this, uh, in this game. Italy, though, was something of a bête noire for the West Germans. Germany have never beaten, to this day, they have never beaten Italy in a competitive match. Until Euro 2016, they had never eliminated Italy from a competition. Of course, Antonio Conte and that, that stupid piece of Simone Zaza changed all that because, as you recall... Pelle. Yeah, okay. Right, you know, at least Graziano Pelle is handsome. Simone Zaza looks like whatever. But... 
that changed when Antonio Conte's Italy were knocked out on penalties. But of course, the game still finished a draw, right? So they mm-hmm. still haven't beaten Italy in a competitive match. Mm. But it's funny because, look, and I say this as somebody who who has German friend, one. Um, <laughs> kidding. As somebody who lived in Germany, in fact, I was living in Germany at the time of the final, I was a kid. Um, what, in 82? In 1982, yeah. Were you? Yes. Um, I, was, <laughs> I, know, I was I was eight years old and living in Germany. You in um, Frankfurt? In Frankfurt, yeah. But the thing about, and, and Germany should take this as a respect, if you ask England who's your biggest footballing rival, they're going to say, why Germany, of course, 1966 and all that. If you ask Holland and all the sort of Simon Cooper, David Winner types, well, of course it's Germany, you know, the Dutch, the war, Ajax, blah, blah, blah. If you ask Italy, it's Germany. There's a very famous you know, Manfredi movie where he plays a waiter, which is an iconic time, I forget what it's called, but he goes and he... He, he, he works in a restaurant in, in Germany, dyes his hair, he tries to act German, and then Italy are playing Germany on a TV, like in the kitchen, and then all of a sudden he can't contain himself. And so it is part of this thing. And, and it's a mark of respect, I think, to Germany that everybody thinks that they're Germany's biggest rival. I like to think that Germany view Italy as more serious rivals than with all the respect to England and Holland, obviously. But who knows? Everybody wants to be their big rival, and, mm. and I think that is significant, and that's what loaded up this game even more. They certainly inflicted some World Cup pain on the West Germans on the 11th of July to the strains of the song that really reigned over the Classifica in Italy that summer, Miguel Bosé's Bravi Ragazzi. Here are the Azzurri destroying West Germany. Wow. 3-1 the final score. We don't need to talk about the Germany goal. What do we need to talk about from that final, James? Antonio Cabrini missing a penalty in the first I half. I thought you were going to say... Cassiani going off as well. Marco Tardelli. Scherer right across to Marco Tardelli! 2-0 to Italy! Tardelli the scorer! A brilliant move! The Germans torn to pieces! Of all iconic moments, and there's so many in this this tournament for for Italy, which I think makes them one of the great uh, World Cup winning teams. Um, you talked about the game of Scopone, you've talked about Rossi, the game against Brazil, um, but Tardelli in the celebration, but also the build up to that that goal, where you've got Shirea and Bergomi, two of your centre backs, playing in the opposition penalty area, passing it between each other, and then setting up Tardelli, um, and. His, it's a good goal as well, isn't it? Falling it's, over. It's a great goal, sliding. We recreated it with uh, Tardelli at BT That's Sport, true, remember? We did, didn't we? Yeah, check that out, because I, I have to play a German defender. Right. Uh, <laughs> didn't go very well. He played himself. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And his face just kind of liquefies when he scores, and I think we asked him about it, and he said, yeah, he can remember everything up until the point that he hit the ball, and then nothing. It's all a blur. And it's quite interesting, if you look at the... 
the European Championship in 1980, he scores the winning goal against England, and he does exactly the same celebration. Oh, does you know, he? It's just incontainable. As, as in, as extreme? Yeah. I've seen this quote, he says, it was like dying. My entire life flashed before my eyes, my friends, my family, Italy. It's just extraordinary. What an what an incredible thing it must have been for him to have been in that moment and so utterly consumed by it. And I can't help but compare it to Paolo Rossi's quote. I'm not sure if you've seen this of at the at the final whistle when everybody's celebrating and, and then I think Dino Zoff's got the got the um the World Cup trophy holding it. It became a great stamp designed yes. by Renato Gutuzo. And Paolo Rossi's basically I think I'm not sure if this is exactly simultaneous, but he he ends up basically standing on a hoarding, looking at the Bernabeu crowd. And this quote from him, he says, I was looking at the crowd, I was looking at my teammates, I was looking at all the Italian flags flying everywhere, and deep down I just felt sadness. You need to stop time, I said to myself. I was never going to live a moment like this again, ever in my life, and I could feel it already slipping away. There you go, it was already over. Incredible. As you say, not an ordinary cat. No, not at all, not at all. And... uh that's the thing, you know, that, that, that's kind of the, the emotional discharge that comes with, with winning a World Cup and, and feeling a part of it, even, you know, even if you're just a fan watching on television, even if, you know, just as I was, an eight-year-old kid in, in Germany. Um, Were you like the waiter in the Nino Manfredi film? No, I was, well, I was watching the game at home, but it was, it was summer and we didn't have air conditioning, so everybody had their, had their windows open and we could hear the reactions through the windows of, of our neighbors who were, who were obviously, you know, German and, and, and the anger and the bad words that I learned that day. And the following day, my mom and I, we drove from, from Frankfurt to, to our place in, in the north of Italy. And obviously we had German license plates. And we discovered that there are many more Italians on the road on that stretch, on that, that like five and a half, six hour drive down. The number of, like, you know, my mom got so angry of people like honking and like, you know, like, like, like sort of gesturing through the windows and 3-1, taking the make. And I remember being so angry and, and sort of insisting, like, couldn't we put a flag on or something? Yeah. Like, why do we have these stupid license plates? And, you know. Non siamo but, crooky. Exactly, non siamo crooky. But, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it is one of those fairy tale. I mean, you can pull out any, any sort of cliche. And, right. But until you experience it, you don't quite know what it's like. Rossi, the hero, for his six goals and a hat-trick against Brazil. We talked about Gentile's marking job of Maradona and then subsequently Zico. This was a legendary World Cup. But in the end, even extraordinary campaigns of destiny like this one, they do come down to those fine lines. If Zoff hadn't made that save against Brazil, if Paolo Rossi hadn't woken up or even been picked, then this would have been just another disappointing Italian tournament. And indeed, two years later, they go back to being pumpkins with the disastrous uh, European Championship. So, uh, well, the, the failure to even qualify for the yeah, 84. Group Portugal. with Romania, to be fair. But yeah. Um, and it did send it into a bit of a tailspin. And remember, too, that summer was probably also the demarcation in terms of Serie A when they changed the foreigner rules. So you could have two foreigners rather than one. Juventus famously added Bonjak and, and Platini to the six world champions that they already had. <laughs> um, Roma would win the title, right. you know, magically with Falcao. Uh, Verona would win the title. And that's when, you know, everybody was anybody, almost, came to Serie A. So Serie A's golden years really begin with this World Cup? I don't think there's any question about mm. it. I, I think it really is 1982 that, that really moves the needle. 
then thereby prompting sort of 15 years of dominance. Also because Gentile gets a call from Gianni Agnelli saying, uh, who was harder to play against, Zico Maradona, kind of the implication being, I might try and sign one of them. Right. Excellent. Well, who knows if in 20 years' time we won't be looking back on this weekend's Italian games and thinking, well, they didn't see much at the time, but little did we know that 6-0 against Liechtenstein was the start of something really, really special. We'll have a quick comment about those in a second or two, but James, I know you've got to disappear off, so thanks for being part of this uh, look back on a very special summer uh, for the Italian game. Gab, we'll have a chat about more recent events after this. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. 2019 has just seen Italy start their European Championship qualifying with two victories. 2-0 against Finland and then 6-0 against Liechtenstein. As we mentioned on, on a related pod on Monday, the 2-0 against Finland came after a run of 16 games in which Italy had only managed to score more than one goal once. Yes, that, and that was against Saudi Arabia. And that was only 2-1. Yes. And, so how and the f- last time they scored two or more was against Liechtenstein. Ah, OK. Um, but last time they scored six goals was all the way back in 1993 under Arrigo Sacchi against Malta. How do you feel then now that the team seems to be finding its scoring touch? How do you feel about the Azuri? Well, I mean, I, I think there's tons to be excited uh, about. They, they play really progressive uh, attacking football. They have three midfielders who who can all pass in uh, in Barella, Jorginho and uh, and Verratti. They have another guy who can pass in Sainzi who came on and, and played in the, in the last game. You look at the center backs and yeah, Chiellini and Bonucci are old, but you can still squeeze a little bit out of them. But then you get really excited for for the next generation of center backs behind them. You know, guys like uh, like Romagnoli, obviously. Zagnolo made his debut. Moise Ken made his debut. Mm. Uh, looked really, really good. And, you know, the guy was born in 2000. The young Quagliarella. Quags was there, converted two penalties. I'm glad he added to his total. I don't need to see him play for Italy again. But, hey, <laughs> you know, well done, to, well, well done to him. I mean, look, this issue with the striker is always an issue. Maybe Moise Ken is the answer. Maybe it's going to be somebody else. Maybe Belotti will be dusted off. Maybe Mario Balotelli. But, no, I don't think so, especially, okay. you know, venting his fury on, on Instagram. But What did he say? He basically said that he was, you know, he, he was disappointed and he felt bad that he couldn't be a part of it. Uh, to which Mancini says, well, he shouldn't feel bad, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, the usual stuff. But, right. you know, the rest of the team is really coming together nicely. There's really progressive players and and they're fun to watch. There's a good vibe around it. You know, I think England fans know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And the other good news for it is the fact that the two main rivals in the group, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Greece... Uh, drew 2-2, so points so dropped by the Butler. Yeah, although they made a big deal of that in Italy, but, I mean, Christ, it's the Euros. 24 of 53 UEFA member nations qualify. Like, I don't even want to have a conversation where we need to worry about Greece and Bosnia and Finland and all this nonsense. I'll move on. With the international break done and dusted, Gab City, I returns with a bang. Several bangs, in fact, this weekend. The only place you can catch it if you're in the UK is Premier Sports. They have seven live games this weekend. Five games next midweek as well across Premier Sports 1 and 2 and their free-to-air channel, Free Sport. Sampdoria against Milan is Saturday evening. Sunday afternoon, it's Roma-Napoli. And then an absolutely huge game on Sunday night as well at San Siro as Lazio visit Inter, who they beat 
just a month ago in the Coppa Italia. On penalties. And it's a huge game for the... I mean, all three of them are, actually, in terms of the race for, for top four places. Because you listen to Galazzi, you can sign up to Premier Sports via Sky and the Premier Player and get your first month completely free. It's five ninety nine a month after that until the end of September. This offer ends on the 31st of March. You haven't got long... If you want to watch all those 12 games across Premier Sports this weekend, as well as highlights and preview shows, head to premiersports.com and enter the promo code Galazzo. TNCs and all that is on the Premier Sports website. Sampdoria Milan, is that the pick of the bunch? I'm quite excited about that Saturday evening. So it should be good, obviously. Um, for me, I would, you know, pick of the bunch for me is still Roman Napoli. Yeah. Things are grinding for Milan, right, after, the, after what we saw in, in the derby. There's so much at stake, and and Paqueta getting his uh, his first international goal for for Brazil, mm. um, and Piontek not at 20 goals yet, <laughs> very close, very close. Sampdoria, meanwhile, who had that five three win at Sassuolo just before the international break, looking exciting too. Sampdoria down in ninth place, but Milan, who are in fourth, they're currently four points ahead of Roma, who themselves beaten by Spal. Just before the international break, they're down, as you say, taking on a Napoli team who look in excellent form ahead of their Europa League clash with Arsenal. That's right. And I think from Napoli's perspective, I think we're going to see the real Napoli. It's not going to be one of those things where they're, you know, because the the Arsenal game isn't for for another 10 days or so after that. Napoli's in an interesting situation. There's Insigne who's been, you know, there's been suggestions, his contract or whatever else. But you feel very good about Carlo Ancelotti being there, being able to keep things calm, keep people focused. And it's a huge game for Roma already, for for Ranieri. They're so angry after the Spal defeat. The fans want blood. Obviously, Monchi already gone, Di Francesco gone. The Spal defeat coming up after their exit from the Champions League at the hands of Porto. And, of course, their derby defeat at the hands of Lazio, 3-0. Lazio, who themselves subsequently got knocked out of the Europa League, uh, we'll be taking on an Inter team who also have been knocked out of the Europa League. Uh, they both won the recent derbies. Lazio followed up the uh, Derby del Capitolino with a 4-1 victory over Parma. And after a real slump, uh, beginning to look like a force again. They lie just behind Roma in sixth place. What do you think, Gab? This is big for Inter because at some point, you know, Icardi started training again. I don't think he's going to play in this game, but, you know, at some point, they need to resolve the situation. You know, Lautaro scored for a bad Argentina side and whatever, and it's great. But I'm on Team Icardi again. And as he continues getting linked to a move, and I don't think he's going to be back next year, but it really is cutting off your nose to spite your face, even if you want to sell him, to just keep him out because it's just going to drive down the price. All righty. Well, you can see all three of those games and plenty more, as you heard, on Premier Sports this weekend. Many thanks, Gabrielli. We'll be back next Wednesday with another slice of City Our History and a reaction to whatever happens around the peninsula in the next few days. I do hope you enjoyed it and you'll be joining us as well then, listener. For now, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand.